Today is the 4th of November, 2014, and this is episode 159. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here at LTB, and today we've got something old and something new. Earlier this year, all of us at LTB headed up Canada Way to attend the Bitcoin Expo. It was fantastic, one of the best conferences I've been to, and they were filming everything, so we didn't have to. Most importantly, the conference had a fireside chat room where intimate, in-person interviews took place with some of the most interesting people in the world of cryptocurrency. Although some time has passed, some of them are very relevant and unheard by anybody without a VIP ticket. A couple of weeks ago, I managed to get my hands on 24 hours worth of content, unedited of course, and still putting it together. But it's a start, and you can expect to see more pieces of content coming from this soon. So for the second half of today's show, we're very pleased to share with you Kyle Kurboyevich's interview with Peter Todd. But first, today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Bruce Fenton, traveler, investor, advisor, and more. Bruce, how are you? Great. Great to be here. I'm a big fan. Well, thanks very much. So you have a lot of hats that you wear. One of them is the Bitcoin Association. And can you just give us kind of an overview of, of what you're doing there? Sure. Basically, the Bitcoin Association came about Around the time of the BitLicense first announcement, and there was a group of us that wanted to write a letter, and we wanted to write it in some kind of way that was on behalf of something, basically. So we got together and created this association, and then we created a website and invited other people to join, and we had several hundred people join since then. And then we've made a pledge to be decentralized in our dealings. That's a little easier said than done right now. It's not something that we're quite up to where we want to be with the technology, but we've made that pledge anyway, that that's the kind of group that we want to be basically advocating for Bitcoin and educating people and governments and individuals about the technology. So, uh, Bruce, Project Eris is something that we have talked about before. You mentioned the decentralization of the Bitcoin Association. Is that what you're talking about? Is that the initiative? Yes. And we, we basically went and uh, looked at a few different options on the type of technology that would make this work. That's what the plan is. The challenge is, is basically implementing it. And we're close on technology with these kind of things. But the biggest challenge, I think, with organizations that want to be decentralized is, is defining all of the things that, that will make up the organizational structure and how things will actually work. How do you, for example, how, how do you award tokens in a fair way? Uh, I, I want to be decentralized. And although I'm president of the Bitcoin Association, I want to kind of step back. Hopefully, maybe we can reach a point where we don't need a president, where we can just have things done. But we also have to recognize the reality of people who put in a lot more time and effort into something. And I, I think that's it's interesting what you've done with Let's Talk Bitcoin and your LTB coin, where you, you have a methodology for awarding tokens based on participation and it's a little harder, I think, with a, an association like this because some things are more subjective as far as how people input. And we, we want to avoid a situation where someone could game the system by simply you know, inviting a couple hundred friends who don't care anything about Bitcoin or hate Bitcoin to join and, and alter votes or course of action or something like that. So th- those are the kind of things that I think organizations moving to decentralization have to think about. So the organization is, is not very old. You guys have been around for... Half a year now? Is that about right? Yeah, it was around the beginning of the year. I think it was 
January, February, something like that, that we, that we, that we got together. So uh, close to a year now. Close to a year now. So, you know, what's the, I remember the first year from the Bitcoin Foundation, we saw a conference come out. And I mean, like there, there were a few things, but it was pretty slow going. And then they've kind of sped up some of the stuff that they've been doing over time. I'm wondering what, what are the priorities for the Bitcoin Association? What, what's the reason? You know, you said that you wanted an association to essentially be representing when you sent this letter. You know, is it still that or has it become something else? What are the priorities? Yeah, the priorities are basically working with some of the other groups. So we've talked to the Global Bitcoin Alliance and some of the other groups in ways that we can cooperate. Basically having something that people can participate in where it's not a really centralized structure. And uh, yeah, I think it is slow moving at, at first for any of these kind of organizations, particularly one like this, where we're trying to do some new new things. And, and like anything in Bitcoin, everybody is busy with their own projects. I think Global Bitcoin Alliance and some of the other groups have the same sort of challenges where, where people are busy doing their own, uh, you know, their own things in this very fast moving and busy space. But uh, yeah, we, we do have, there's a conference, the Dubai Bitcoin conference. It's not so much being done on behalf of the association, but it's very closely associated with the association. It's, I wouldn't, our conference, because again, trying to be decentralized, we want to avoid that type of thing. But that's certainly something that I'm very active and many of the other members uh, who are active in the association are active in, in doing this conference in Dubai. Decentralization in this context, I'm really curious because the, the foundation is kind of a counterpoint to that. The, the foundation has not attempted to be decentralized, and that's not a slight against it, but you're really emphasizing that that's something that's important to you to the point where you don't even necessarily want the conference in Dubai to be one that is you know associated directly with you. You just want it to be something that's associated loosely. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's important to note that we don't view ourselves as competing with the foundation anyway. I'm a life member of the foundation and I'm active on some of the, and I, I have a lot of good friends there. So it's, we don't, we don't, at least there may be members who view it that way, but, but certainly that's not the official position of the association or me. Certainly. I'm not really phrasing it like it's competition. I'm more looking at this like you have choices, right? You, you have choices. You're providing an alternative to the foundation. So you're not, might not be competing. But somebody might choose to join the association over the foundation, or they might, as you've done, choose to do both. Okay, so the purpose of it was for regulation. So let's talk about regulation for a second. The bit license proposal, what were the specific areas about that that you guys picked out as the, as the, the critical areas that had to be corrected? I think actually the original letter was done before the, the license was presented. And we haven't actually made a response, and we don't plan to make a response, because I, I, I feel personally that Ben Lasky has acted in bad faith, and I, I don't feel that it's worth engaging him, actually, at this point. I think that he's really proven himself to be an enemy of this community and, and this technology, and I think that his proposal was so hopelessly overboard and so ridiculous that it's not even worth uh, responding to. So, we don't intend to make an official response. Certainly, I'm, I'm not going to put my name on any official response to the bit license, that, and there's other people that are doing that, and I, I wish them the best. The original letter was was before that. It was basically trying to encourage Ben Lasky. And we had about, I think, 200, 300, 400 signatures maybe on that. It was certainly over a couple hundred signatures. And we never received any response. But the original letter was designed to uh, basically encourage him to not do the kind of things that he ended up doing with his bit license proposal. So what were the things about the bit license proposal that you find to be particularly egregious? Because to not respond, I mean, like I can... 
we, you know, uh, I talk with a lot of anarchists, right? I talk with a lot of people who are very heavily on the libertarian side. And what you just told me sounds a lot like what somebody who's more on that side would say, rather than someone who, you know, wrote a letter trying to help, you know, you know I mean, it, it just seems like that's an unusual position for you to take. Am I misidentifying that? Yeah, it might be a little bit unusual. I just think that he's acted in bad faith because I think that he has lied to, and that's a strong word and a strong accusation, but I've used examples, for example, him saying, claiming that he had no knowledge uh, and it was a complete surprise and coincidence that Charlie Shrem was arrested a day or two before his New York hearings. I, I don't believe that's true. And I, and I, if he can prove me otherwise, I would apologize to him for, for calling him out on that. But I don't believe that. And I don't believe that anybody who is familiar with this space believes that he was unaware of it and it wasn't part of his media show. So there's been many, many things like that in his way that he interacted with the community, with his AMA and other things, giving the impression that he would be careful and thoughtful and then basically cut and pasting existing banking regulation written by and for banks and then exempting banks from, you know, of course, banks are exempt from the bit license. I think that these things show uh, profound bad faith. I don't think that he's interested in helping the people uh, that, and and I can't even really say he represents because he's not even elected, but the people that he's supposed to represent in in the state of New York, I don't believe that his motivation is saying, let me protect people. I think his motivation is, let me further my career so I can run for governor, let me get publicity, let me do a media show. Let me hurt Bitcoin. Let me do do the bidding of the banks. And I may be wrong on these things. I know they're strong accusations, but that's how I feel. So when in the in the regular world, I wouldn't deal with somebody who acted on bad faith or who I felt was misleading or opportunistic to this level. I just I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it in business. I wouldn't do it in my personal life. So I think that we strengthen him by engaging him by continually acting like he is a leader in this space because he he really isn't a leader in this space. He shouldn't be. He's only there because of his his ability to do harm to us. He's not there because he's a great programmer, or he has a lot of merit, or he's written brilliant white papers on, and put things on GitHub. He's just there surely because of his his power to do bad things to people in the in the space. So so that well. So let's talk. Let, let's let's take a step back then and talk about you know not necessarily Ben Lossky, but you know rewind before the bit license com- uh, comes out or before the bit license proposal comes out. You send this letter. What is the hope? What, what is the result that you hope to generate from it? What if, you know, like Ben Lossky or whoever had done it right, what would that have looked like? Would it have been, you know, just like clarification or would there have been some, I mean, to paint the picture. In a perfect world, I'd like to see regulators just back off from this for five years or so and give the technology time to move and do its own thing. And then they can decide that would be a perfect world. So the letter was to try and encourage him to recognize that this creates jobs, potentially has all kinds of upside benefit and a lot of downside benefit of regulating it where you can sort of smother an industry before it has a chance to really thrive. There are startups that won't, if the bit license or anything close to it comes out, there are startups that won't even start up. There are venture capitalists who will say, oh, I'm not going to mess with that. It's too heavily regulated. I'm going to invest in something else. There are, there are entrepreneurs who just won't even decide to create a new business. We, so we never know what will be missed. By that, and that's what we were trying to encourage. Yeah, I'm not an anarchist. I will engage with regulators. There's other regulators that I have met with, met with the Massachusetts regulators and others. And there, there are others that I think are much, much more reasonable than Ben Lasky. They are really genuinely interested in 
protecting the public or at, at the very least protecting themselves from bad perceptions, like if they allowed another Mt. Gox to happen under their watch kind of thing. So they do have at least some more alignment with the public, whereas Ben Lasky, I, I don't really think does. So Bruce, you know, outside of the association, what are you spending your time doing these days? Well, my regular career that I've had for the last 20 years or so is involved with uh, economic consulting. I used to work at Morgan Stanley, and then I, I fired a firm called Atlantic Financial, which was the first full-service investment for 1994. And over the years, that's gravitated to be more and more of a big-picture economic advisory. So we, we've ended up with fewer clients, but larger clients. So we advise some of the largest organizations in the world, uh, ultra, ultra high net worth um, individuals, people, you know, like a billionaire type of people and, uh, and organizations and advising them on big picture economic trends and especially related to emerging markets and within the emerging markets, especially the Middle East. Seems like it's been a pretty decent time to be in the macro picture the last 15 years. How you done? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We don't manage much money anymore. It's mostly uh, a, a lot of what I spend my kind of day job doing is a lot of introductions and a lot of meetings and helping people understand you know, the changes that are happening in our world. And that does touch on technology. And that's probably one of the reasons that I became very interested in Bitcoin originally, because I've seen this kind of thing. I've seen interesting new things come along when people were first talking about the internet or social media or India and China being viable economies, these kind of things. Uh, I've seen that before. So that made me especially interested in this technology. Well, and that actually was where I was going with this next is, you know, like the comparison between the now period, the period from 2009, 2008 to 2014 versus, you know, like the, the mid to late 90s, and the early 2000s. It seems like there's some analogous stuff going on here. And yet, you know, the Internet, despite the big boom and bust that we had, uh, wound up being a really formational and, you know, ground changing uh, technology. Yeah, absolutely. We did have a shakeout and we're going to have shakeouts in this space transformed the world. We can barely conceive of what things were like uh, without some of the technology that we have, not just the internet, but think, you know, I, I put a post on my Facebook the other day saying that, you know, just a little while ago, it was not possible to be on the telephone and on the beach at the same time. It was just the technology didn't exist. And that was only 30 years ago or so. And, uh, and, and mobile phones were not really affordable to the mass market until more like almost 10 years ago. So, the internet has changed. The other technologies like mobile technology have changed a lot. I, I absolutely believe that, that Bitcoin and related technologies are going to change the world as well. One of the things that I've noticed about convenience is that I do a lot more of it, right? I mean, if something is convenient, then it's, I mean, it's, it's not always good because it used to be that if you had a really calorie rich meal, you know, not, not it used to be like 50 years ago, but it used to be, you know, like, 10,000 years ago, if you had a really calorie rich meal, it's probably because you had, you know, done something that was very physical. And so it was like, it was a tangible reward that was in proportion to the effort that had gone in. And I'm not a student of, uh, of, of finance in any way, shape or form. I've really been forced into trying to learn and understand what's going on because it became so obvious to me that I didn't understand before. Both with cell phones and just technology in general, as we increase in technology, it feels like we're not increasing the amount of effort that goes into it. And that's a good thing from the perspective of we get to do more of it, but it's a bad thing because it makes it less meaningful. This is not even a question. I'm just like throwing words at you at this point. It is just something yeah, that struck me. Yeah, it's fascinating. Me. I think one of the fascinating things about that is how easy it is to do an internet search. There's pieces of information that if I had to go to a library to find out, I just wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm just, right. you know, I'm curious. And I think a lot of people in this space 
are particularly curious. That's why we're in this space. Looking at a truck or something on the road and say, gee, I wonder what the deal with that is. I wonder what their revenue is. I wonder how that tire works or something. And and I will uh, do an internet search for it. Everyone who does this ends up a lot smarter than we would be because we're making all of these interesting interconnected pieces of knowledge that we get from from all of the, the, the ease of access to information out there. So, Bruce, for both our lifetimes, the petrodollar, that is uh, major oil producers agreeing to only sell their oil in exchange for U.S. dollars, has kind of been a fact of life. This is good for dollar holders and for dollar producers. Anyone who wants to buy oil from these producers must first acquire dollars, which increases the demand for dollars and gives you a meaningful utility beyond the domestic currency use that they might otherwise have. You know, you spend a lot of time in the Middle East, uh, which has, you know, a great concentration of these oil producing nations that, that do uh, honor the petrodollar. One of the things that's always just boggled my mind is, is there an awareness? I mean, what, what is it like? Uh, are you using dollars on the ground in these countries? And is there an awareness that something is being given, a, a very meaningful power, a utility is being given to the dollar at the expense of the local currency? Yeah, there's quite a bit of an awareness about it. I think it's interesting because people in the, especially the Gulf states, the Arab states that are net oil exporters, I think there's a great understanding about, first of all, oil and petrodollars and more of an understanding about the economy. I mean, young kids in high school know how many barrels a day their country produces, that kind of thing, whereas only people in the economics field tend to know that in the United States or or something where oil is not as part of our lives that's uh, so important. So, there's also a lot of interest in people who, I'm always interested, well, I'll meet a lot of uh, people in the Gulf states that are like Ron Paul fans and, uh, you know, end the Fed kind of kind of fans, you know, people who follow a lot of this stuff about, you know, how does the Fed work and asking a lot of these kind of questions. So yeah, there is quite a bit of an awareness. The currencies of these countries are typically tied to the dollar in a fixed rate. So the Durham and the Rial and the Dinar, the, these, these currencies are typically tied to U.S. dollars on a fixed rate. So their central banks don't have the power we have, which is a good thing and bad thing. It's, it's good, hopefully, for Bitcoin because they, uh, since they have less power, they, they feel like they're giving away less if they allow other, other alternatives into the system. That's my hope. The bad thing, of course, is that they don't really have much power. Really, all of these currencies are is United States dollars with a different person's picture and a different denomination on that. One of the things that struck me is that it's a monopolistic system in that pretty much if, I mean, like there are very few countries that exist outside of this system, right? And the ones that are outside of the system, like Iran and most recently, I don't know if Russia has been ejected from SWIFT or if they're just threatening it still. It seems like this is a very bad thing for those countries because it essentially, it's, it's, uh, they're forced to choose between complying with whatever the will is that the controller of the petrodollar wants them to do or to essentially divorce themselves from the entire rest of the world in a commercial sense. That seems like if it's used well, then it's okay, right? Because you can have a, you could have like a caretaker or essentially a steward of the, of the currency who only focuses on maximizing the utility and the, you know, the longstanding value and all of these other kind of good fundamentals. But that's not really the world that we live in. And so it's been interesting watching as Russia and China have been talking about essentially excising the dollar from their the trade negotiations. And the thing that strikes me about it is that this is a situation that never could have happened or never could happen unless we explicitly 
make it happen, right? Unless the, 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 the petrodollar explicitly says these countries can no longer use it or that country can no longer use it, which then forces that country probably to their detriment, you know, to make other deals. And yet, if you force someone to reinvent the wheel, right? then they've still reinvented the wheel. And that's competition where before there wasn't any. Right. It's really interesting because I think that a lot of these countries may want to do things that would make more sense for them. But there's another political reality. It's not just the controllers of the petrol dollar. It's the bigger picture, macro picture about the relations with particularly the United States and and other allies of the United States, but particularly the US. So they have to face the reality of, will we upset the United States? So unfortunately for the central bankers in these countries, they are not driven by saying, well, what's, what's going to be best for my economy? What's going to be best for my people? They're going to say, uh, some things are just completely off the table. If it will upset the United States, they won't do it because the United States can be a good friend and a very you know, bad enemy if you're a Gulf state. It's very easy for the United States to turn on a group. And uh, you know, there's some that speculate that Saddam moving away petrodollar and wanting to trade in obscure currencies was part of the reason that he kind of ended up high on our list of of people that we wanted to get because we have had times where we were sort of allies with Saddam and we, we've done that a lot we can be very fickle about who our allies are and, and turn on them you know very quickly and all it takes is the United States to declare somebody a bad guy and a lot of the citizens will support bombing their people or you know, making life miserable for them or sanctions or anything else so so that's another reality that they do have to deal with so uh, you think we're ready for proof of consumable barrels of oil? Not quite yet. I wish, and I wish that we'd. I wish we'd see <laughs> barrels trading in Bitcoin. I think that it will be a slow process, and that's the ultimate kind of prize in global economics. I mean, that's a very, very big deal, much bigger deal than having a huge retailer or something come aboard. It's it's not even comparable. It would take quite a bit. That would be probably one of the last things that that changes if Bitcoin really does take off the way that we hope it does. There are baby steps that can happen in, in between where some of these countries and, and uh, oil producers may start using blockchain-related technologies and, and you know taking baby steps to do that. They could also do it with some of their internal operations. They could actually accept Bitcoin or maybe sell uh, oil for a portion of the oil for Bitcoin or use it as a back-end mechanism. They do tons of transfers. Billions and billions of dollars a day are transferred to New York banks and European banks for the, the oil. You know, you're looking at millions of barrels of a day at, at right now, 90 bucks a barrel. So it's, it's a ton of money that's being moved around. It wouldn't take much for it to have a huge impact on Bitcoin, even if it was just a, a fraction of a, of, a, of a tiny piece of it. So in Las Vegas, a couple of days ago, Overstock revealed uh, Medici, which is a platform essentially built on counterparty that is going to let people create user-created assets, you know, tokens on the counterparty platform and then essentially what the Medici platform is designed to do is to obsolete a lot of the functions that Wall Street provides and do it in a way that is compliant with, you know, with U.S. law. And they, they have the budget to actually pull that off. I know that there isn't a lot of news about this yet. I'm curious for your impression. Yeah, well, I, I started my career on Wall Street and I've, I've been, you know, kind of grew up on Wall Street. And I think that it's very much ripe for disruption. There's a lot of things that are, you know, there's still traders, floor traders that go in and they're still using hand signals and pieces of paper. This is a hundred-year-old technology that they're still using. Now, most of it is done electronically, but you can see it right on the news. You can go visit the floor, and there are people with the—they have a bright jacket so that other traders can see them. I mean, this is old, old, old tech, 
and also there's a lot of coming from you know kind of uh, I've thought about writing a book one of these days you know Confessions of a Financial Advisor I think there was one Confessions of a Stockbroker years years before Financial Advisors is the new kind of thing but there's tons of profit in this industry there's lots of money being made without tons of value being added to the uh, consumers frankly so that's another area that's ripe for disruption I think that we're going to see a lot of these changes and I'm, I'm really glad to see that that uh, Patrick Byrne and Overstock are, are pushing this because it's got to happen and it's only a matter of time I think before it, it takes place and that will be better for the consumers it will be it will hurt some of my colleagues and former colleagues who are on Wall Street because they're going to m- make uh, less money but it will be good for the world and good for consumers overall Bruce Fenton FentonReport.com thank you thanks for your time This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. Today's magic word is Petro. That's P-E-T-R-O. Petro. You've got until the 7th of November to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now we take a step back in time, joining Kyle Krabojevich and Peter Todd. So I'm here with Peter Todd. Now, you're a core Bitcoin developer, as well as uh, a few other things, like you've been really behind off-chain transactions and so on and so forth. I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about Heartbleed with you. But before we get to any of that, how did you first get involved in Bitcoin? Well, it's funny. In my email somewhere, I have an email from, I think, late 2009 or so, to a friend saying, look at this cool paper that I found. And to be honest with you, I have no idea where I found it. Like, okay. Yeah. And it was kind of then a bit later, maybe two years later or so, where I started kind of looking into it more, you know, getting involved in the community. And then finally, kind of last year, that's when I, well, off-chain transactions example, that's when I started doing work on that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's actually, I'm relatively late to participate. Okay. Compared to some of the people around here. Yeah, but still very early compared to the masses, if you will. Yeah. So tell us about off-chain transactions, or what was the what, what is the benefit of off-chain transactions? Well, I think where well, the real issue there is, you know, Bitcoin needs to scale. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, like the existing system right now is this crazy idea that everyone knows everything. You know, we have this global consensus with global state is shared across everyone, and that that's just not going to work. So off-chain transactions were my initial effort to figure out how could we make this work. I think I and you know Gregory Maxwell and some other people, I think we did a lot of good work on figuring out, really cracking the problem for payments. How can you trust a third party with your money? And since then, we also have micropayment uh, hubs, which goes even kind of a step further and says, well, we'll use a third party, but they'd never really have the money for any significant amount of time, so it doesn't matter. I think, yeah, long story short, for payments, we've done a pretty good job on scalability, and I think we have good solutions. Okay. So in terms of scalability, I mean, how do you feel about the current state of where Bitcoin is today, both in terms of the price and in terms of the amount of people using it, though it's hard to determine? Right now, we're really seeing that the scalability story, we're failing on that. You know, the number of uh, full nodes is going down. The number of people who use Bitcoin with a full node is not increasing. 
in, you know, in the sense that most new users, they go use wallets that just outsource all the verification to someone else. Either miners directly, full nodes, or even worse, something like blockchain.info, where they're not really checking anything. But I've, I almost feel like that's a, cont- a trend that could continue to propagate. Because I think it most will. Of, most of the mainstream yeah. people, they don't care. They'd rather use yeah. something that's you know just pulling uh, the latest block headers, if you will. And I think what it comes down to is you know, scale building security are just opposite sides of the coin. You know, if you do not have scalability, well, you end up with centralization. And centralization means that the security that we care about, which is we can do Bitcoin transactions, and nobody can tell us no, yeah. that fails. Mm-hmm. It's almost funny because we've been taught to accept centralization yeah. as a form of security in the sense that yeah. if you're using TD or whatever the bank yeah. is, uh, well, it's centralized. If yeah. they fail and it's their error, they'll reimburse me. But yeah. you now it's like in an effort to move away from that, we actually have to kind of pick up the slack, yeah. you know, and people and, don't you want know, to. I think it's very important to remember that that model of we trust someone else to hold their money and we as society keep them in check with legal systems, that does work. Not perfect, but it works very well in some situations. But we already have that. You know, we shouldn't recreate that all over again in Bitcoin. We should go do something that provides an alternative to that system. So that when that system doesn't work, we have the alternative. Whereas if Bitcoin doesn't scale, well, you've got this additional set of central parties that you're working with. What's the point? Yeah. So how do you see that happening, though? I mean, are, are you encouraging people to... I mean, the, the real problem is blockchain bloat. You know, it's, uh, we're up to X amount of gigs now. Nobody wants to store the full node. What are the alternatives for people that... Well... You know, this is why I'm working for uh, Mastercoin and these other projects right now. It's, you know, when JR, well, I mean, I'm kind of somewhat infamous for having said last summer, you know, Mastercoin's an idea sufficiently stupid as to be indistinguishable from a scam. But of course, then JR, for all his credit, said, all right, fine, you go work for us and let's go fix it. Mm-hmm. And a big part of fixing that was actually fixing the layer it's on top of, which is Bitcoin. You know, how do you make Bitcoin itself scale? And that's where my research efforts are going. And I think we can go do this. We can go create blockchain systems that can be spread across multiple people. So any one person doesn't need to contribute back some enormous amount of bandwidth, some enormous amount of disk space. You know, you can contribute a bit. You can mine with a bit. Do you see that this problem is going to get worse, or do you think it's going to get worse with the launch of things like Ethereum or other meta layer protocols that are basically taking more and more variables and trying to store them in. Bitcoin, for the most part, is a very simplified ledger in that sense. So how do these new meta layer principles affect that? Well, I think it's important to recognize that embedded consensus systems, which do use Bitcoin blockchain directly, in terms of scalability, they are identical to Bitcoin transactions in general. You know, in that... Byte per byte, you have the exact same impact on the network if you are, say, playing Satoshi Dice or if you're moving bonds around on, you know, MasterCoin or Counterparty or something. So what's important is to make scalability happen so that everyone benefits. Gotcha. I'm very interested in the Ethereum project, too. I think it's interesting having this layer that you can do more. But my focus right now is actually to make the layer that everything's working on actually simpler. You can have a model where you have clients. Client side is verifying the integrity of transactions. 
so that if I want to give you money, rather than I signing a message that really it's a Bitcoin miners telling you is valid, I will go prove to you, look, I actually gave you money and the Bitcoin mining community itself doesn't actually really need to validate that that really happened, which I think is a much better model and it kind of keeps things simple in the same way that the internet is this very simple thing at the core. All of the intelligence is pushed out to the ends. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the recent uh, hard bleed? I don't want to harp on about it, but uh, <laughs> it was all over your Twitter wall, and uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Oh, I think it's a good example of why C is a terrible language. Okay. You know, I think that's a failure software engineering. Okay. I mean, and I do think, um, I know Kyle Drake mentioned this, how it does go show that a lot of this stuff is very underfunded. Mm-hmm. You know, within the Bitcoin space, I'm extremely lucky to be able to work on this full time. But, you know, we need more efforts like that. We need more people looking at this stuff. Yeah. And that's changing, but... Yeah, it seems, it seems like a lot of the development now is based on commerce platforms as yeah. well, um, which is great, but it's... Uh, and maybe that will actually force us to have to scale sooner rather than yeah. later, uh, which is nice. But it, but it also might not. I mean, yeah. I think one of the real worries is commercial interests, they want a return quickly. And security and decentralization is something where the impacts of it are only really seen later. You know, we could have a Bitcoin where everything was left up to a pool of six miners. You know, they called the shots. And it would work fine until they decided, hang on, we want to, say, blacklist some transactions. We want to do this or that, which is against the wishes of the Bitcoin community. Until that point, everything looks good. But it's easy to walk into that and not realize it. What do you think are some of the real challenges for scalability, like specifically as we move forward? And say, let's, let's say the three to six month mark. Oh, I don't think it's, there's an issue there. Oh, okay. I, think in, I think in the short term, we're actually in a very good place because Bitcoin does have transaction fees. Mm-hmm. It does have this economic pricing system so that we can arbitrate who's using the Bitcoin blockchain based on how much they're willing to pay. Gotcha. So if nothing happened, I think we'd actually be in a very good place. Okay. Not perfect. I'd love it to, to be even better. But, you know, this was kind of the whole point of off-chain transactions. You know, it's a safe, pragmatic way to handle the scalability problem. We're not all walking into a solution that may fail en masse. You know, with off-chain transactions, the core idea there is that you may be using a different system than I am. And that's a good thing because... If your system fails, mm-hmm. you haven't taken down the whole system. Yeah. Whereas if you say do something like just uncap the block size, you're pushing the entire system in a direction where it can fail all at once. Sure. We'll open it up to questions as well if you guys have questions. Peter, can you talk a little bit about uh, implementation of off-chain transactions and trusted chips? Well, I mean, I think that just goes to show that the point of that is that you can go and have a lot of options. You know, if you wish to, say, do instant payments and, you know, you and I have agreed on some common platform for that with Trust Chips, yeah, that can work fine. In the same way that, you know, most of the time your debit card payments are secure. I think, if anything, I've, I think, you know, the, the theory behind how to do this stuff is very well understood. I'm much more interested right now in making blockchains at self-scale. Mm-hmm. What do you think is like the sort of short-term solution to the disappearance of nodes in the network? Uh, I know other people are listening, like 
make notes more lightweight and easier to run. Yeah. What do you think should be done? Well, my big thinking on this is it really shows that the having a black and white sort of alternative where you're either an SPV node or a full node is a bad thing. And what's important is, and you, can, and you can do this with the current Bitcoin technology, is spread the load out across a lot of people. You know, for instance, my Android wallet, it may not have a lot of bandwidth, but if I have, say, multi-bit at home, there's no reason why my home computer can't also participate in distributing blocks around the network. We may not be able to, at present, validate them fully, but you can certainly help participate in the bandwidth needed to just keep the network running. And, you know, I think it's actually a lot of low-hanging fruit like that that we need to be looking at. And then going forward, you know, I think it's important to continue in a model where the minimum requirements to mine are low, which is why, you know, when I hear uh, all the side chains and merge mining proposals, they actually really worry me. Let's talk about worst-case scenario. Let's say we get to a point where nodes are fast decreasing and then we end up with less than 100, let's say. Or, or do you know what the number is at now, just for ballpark? Uh, it's about 5,000. About 5,000. Yeah. So let's say it drops exponentially downwards. What kind of problems do we run into at that point? As I say, you're not going to see a problem until you see a really big problem. Like I'll say as an example, uh, what's actually maybe even more important is go keep mining in a place where, you know, currently, as we know, mining is very centralized. In the short term, it only takes literally to go up to two or three mining pools at most to essentially take over the network. Yeah. And that's something that could happen by a hack. But fortunately, we're currently in a place where if that did happen, Bitcoin is still sufficiently decentralized that mining pools can go pop up essentially in instantly. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, a good example is um, if you've heard about the sidechains proposal, you know, you might have a system where for Bitcoin ecosystem function, you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of these sidechains. Well, all right, let's go suppose two big major mining pools go down. Now, to replace that functionality, now you've kind of got to import and reset up hundreds of these sidechains all at once. It's not going to happen instantly. And that's an example where, by increasing the overhead to mine, to run a full node, we've done a lot of harm to the network. Gotcha. Do you think that it's likely for subcurrencies to exist for the same sidechain functionality, but rather than doing it as Bitcoin, maybe there's a, a, another blockchain that's completely separate from it? Like, for instance, we see with, with Dogecoin or with uh, Litecoin, there seems to be coins finding their niches. And the volume for Dogecoin is great, but the value is not there. So I'm just curious, because if you were to take all of the capital that's put into these altcoins and reinvest them in Bitcoin. I'd be curious to see what the price is again. Um, it almost seems like people are using side currencies for various reasons, yeah. mostly trading. But Well, so my big take on that is, you know, with consensus security, it's strength in numbers. You really want everyone contributing towards the same underlying blockchain. So what I'm working on with, say, my tree chains um, concept that I'll be presenting tomorrow is how do you create a system where that load is distributed across everyone in a way that everyone can contribute a little bit to the mining, to the running of a, running nodes, and so on. And we create this platform that then everything's built on top of. And that 
you know, is contrasted to this model of, well, Dogecoin. Dogecoin is, you know, this much hashing power. Litecoin is this much. Bitcoin is, you know, this much. Well, if Dogecoin is this much, anyone who wants to attack Dogecoin can just do so. And the barrier to doing so is much smaller. Whereas if we all operate on a fundamental level, such as my tree change concept or something else that someone comes up with, you end up with a system where to attack any part, you have to attack the whole. Yeah, yeah. Each node and each person strengthens it. Exactly. Essentially. Yeah. Whereas currently, we don't actually have that system. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So it's a question in the distributed trust at the mining side. Um, it strikes me that there are two interesting things. The one is, should we get to a point where large mining pools are required to have more than one technology foundation running yeah. in their pool as opposed to you know, 5,000 of this specific yeah. basic miner running side by side? It's a huge value if they have 12 different schemes. Um, and that couples with a second question, which is having watched the Open SSL fiasco this week, the fundamental basis of open SSL's kind of open source community trust model yeah. um, makes the assumption that there's proper review of the code that's being, that's being done. And would it also be a benefit to have more than one implementation of the foundation of Bitcoin completely isolated? So well, you have more than one code base that you're actually building the infrastructure from that are intentionally firewalled off. Yeah. Specs are how about people build the code? The probability that you get, even if you could get to a few. Yeah. Well, let me um, let me answer kind of the second part of that first, which is, you know, say like right off the bat, you know, OpenSSL is certainly a failure of code review. Right. And fortunately, with Bitcoin, the code base is actually fairly easy to understand. It's fairly easy to review, and I know for a fact that we do have a fair number of people looking at it. I know you disagree with me on that. But, you know, we do have a fair number of people looking at the code base. And I know that bugs get found because you can go see the pull requests. You can see the issues being found. You know, it's certainly not perfect. We could have done better. But compared to, say, OpenSSL, we're miles ahead of that. So... Yeah, but part of that is because it's new and cool right now. When OpenSSL was first written, one would argue that actually the community that yeah. participated in OpenSSL had probably three or four times the size yeah. of the room participating in the actual coding. So here's my second part. Yeah, yeah. Three guys working on it. Well, and like, oh. So here's my second part of the, of the answer to that, which is I think if you have a complex system, and Bitcoin is a relatively complex system, in the context of consensus security where you want everyone working together towards a common goal, everyone hashing on the same blockchain. Multiple implementations are very dangerous because it's, we are, you know, computer science is not at the point where we can write a bug-for-bug -bug compatible implementation of Bitcoin and get it right. right. You know, there are just so many ways to fork the blockchain. So I argue what we should do is create a fundamental layer that's simpler, that can support other layers on top of it, and get that one layer right the first try, so that while computer science is still catching up, you know, we can audit that carefully and hope we've done it well enough. In the future, if it's simpler, it'll be easier to then keep going on. Um, it's, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, 
uh, like looking at the Bitcoin software, uh, like as someone who understands like the the, co- the early code written yeah. by Satoshi, can, like very like a uh, very thoroughly. I look at the newer versions of Bitcoin, and it's very very different. Like if even the coin selection, even the other day I was looking at the. Elliptic numbers yeah. stuff and they completely changed yeah. all the algorithms. But remember, coin selection is client side. What coin no, no, selection no, no, algorithm no, I use no, no, does not the, matter for you. No, no, for the, when you process the block, it goes and it fetches all of the all of the, the previous. Oh yeah, you, you mean yeah, you mean the database so side? There's, yeah, there's a, yeah. There's a lot of stuff yeah. like this in actual the core consensus yeah. part of Bitcoin, yeah. which is which is is being changed a lot. So even from version to version of Bitcoin, like I understand what yeah. you're saying about the consensus of the actual yeah. algorithm. If we could keep that unchanged, but there's a lot of uh, pushing from from developers who want to go and optimize where it yeah. doesn't really need to be well, optimized. Well, I think this gets back to my point about keeping it simple. You know, if you have a scalable system, yeah, yeah. you do not need to go spend a lot of effort hyper-optimizing things, use the most efficient possible database, and changing it every version. You know, you can just accept. That's my, my second question. Like, yeah. I, I, I really believe that with Bitcoin, the fundamentally we need to keep it as the core yeah. algorithm as simple as possible because in the future, if we balloon it, it's going to yeah. emerge into this massive standard yeah. with like, you know, so many yeah. thousands of the no Well, like I say, this is why I'm working on things like tree chains, which push validation client side and really provide you with this extremely simple layer to publish data. Because yeah, yeah. publishing data can be something that's simple. So do you see it as a threat to Bitcoin, like all these other features that developers want to throw in? If you're not careful about... If you're, if you're just putting it directly into Bitcoin itself, yeah, I think that's a bad model. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think we need to do that. And I think it's interesting how MasterCoin... I think was the first system that really picked on to this. Hang on a second. We don't need Bitcoin miners to validate stuff for us. We can use this as a system of distributing data to people in a secure way, and then they can come to consensus. You know, MasterCoin hasn't implemented it perfectly, but it was on the right track, and I want to push that sort of theory even further. In the meantime, how do you think that the uh, performance of Bitcoin for get blockchain uh, performance and so on for downloading? At the moment, it seems quite painful, less than my first Oh, there's um, uh, um, the core developers, um, Peter, I can never pronounce his last name, W-U-I-L-L-E, you know, SIP on IRC. Um, he's got a patch, actually, that goes and very much fixes that problem. It, it essentially lets blocks be downloaded in parallel. So there's certainly good work being done on that kind of thing. Gavin? Uh, yeah, just to um, <coughs> follow up a few questions ago. Um, you mentioned that it's going to be hard to uh, have a uh, book for book yeah. implementation. Um, I just wonder if you look into um, you know, a language like B where you can do um, formal proof of uh, an implementation from a basic set theoretic description of what well, I think this gets back to my point about how computer science hasn't caught up to that. Because, yes, there exist, there exist ways to go do this, but do we see day-to-day developers using, using B? No. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure in 10 years it'll be different. But, you know, I think we really need to stick with technologies that are very well understood across a broad set of people. And if that means we have to make compromises about how complex we can make it, I'd rather keep it simple so that when these technologies do exist, we can then use them on layers above. I mean, I kind of have my rule of thumb that uh, if you can't teach it to an art student and bring them up to speed and have them contributing to it, it's not a good idea. Now, I'm a bit biased having a fine arts degree there, but you know, I think that's kind of a good rule of thumb. And Bitcoin, I think, is very successful because the crypto behind it is actually really simple in some ways. So um, just to follow up on that, did you, do you envisage, if you can make it simple enough, that um, a book-for-book book, um, re-implementation might be? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that might be a target yeah. that you Yeah. Do you think like a, a way forward might be to like uh, go to an, like uh, an earlier version of, of the Satoshi software and take out that core consensus part and then but then by how how would it be like now it's like competing with the or, or what do you think yeah. there should be a way to establish this consensus among implementation development? Well I think um, a pragmatic level is certainly to turn the Satoshi code into a library so that you know your LibBitcoin's a great example where LibBitcoin adds a lot of stuff around that core consensus code that is valuable. And if it used that code directly, you'd have a much higher chance of it being bug-for-bug compatible. It's still not perfect. I mean, running Bitcoin on two different machines with the same code isn't bug-for-bug compatible, but it's much, much closer than the model of let's just go re-implement it from scratch. And then going forward, you know, future systems, future redesigns of it, when you're pushing validation out to clients, the underlying system itself will still come to consensus. And, you know, you end up with the disagreements happening not globally. Yeah, so, it, like, it would, it would need to be, like, an API with a, with a pipeline, and then, uh, but, like, that API would, would specify some requirements beforehand, so we need these blocks. Yeah. Like, how would, how would you stop? Because even within that consensus, there's ways to optimize that even possibly, right? Well, you know, like I say about optimization, I mean, try try to avoid going too far with that. You know, OpenSSL open Heartbleed book, that's an example where optimization caused a ton of problems, to go put it mildly. You know, they went and used their own memory allocation code, which meant that it was very hard to test whether or not the memory allocation was done right. Sure, it was faster, but now we've had to kind of restart the, restart the internet, in a sense. You know, and I don't think that was worth that. Yeah, OpenSSL has always had the Val grind. Yeah. But do, do you not maybe think also uh, it might be like kind of inevitable that, that people are just going to go and build their own parts of the ecosystem yeah. and they're going to have to try and find the consensus mutually? I think this is uh, something that Bitcoin is currently flawed in. For instance, right now, there's nothing that actually requires miners to validate the blockchain. You know, if I'm a miner and I want to go and save some money, I can just go assume someone else is validating for me. Well, of course, if everyone does that because it saves some money, at some point the system falls apart. And we're already seeing miners begin to do this. For instance, someone else finds a new block, they want to start working as fast as possible, not have dead time when they're not making money. How do they do this? Well, they start mining the next block before they've even received the one that was just mined. 
And this is actually something people are doing. Bitcoin protocol doesn't stop that. How do we also resist like the, the temptation? The, like, so I, I always see a classic tendency with Bitcoin developers that there's like some new theoretical thing proposed and everybody goes, let's start putting it in the blockchain. And there's no consideration yeah. that like, hold on, maybe there's a, a longer term risk here, you know, about yeah. centralizing the ecosystem. Well, this is why I like systems... I like, I like these embedded consensus systems like MasterCoin. You know, if MasterCoin screws up, that only affects MasterCoin users. It does not affect the rest of Bitcoin. And MasterCoin is just as secure as Bitcoin because it operates on the same layer. And sorry, MasterCoin users. I mean, I'd much rather go see your system fail because you screwed up than to see the whole Bitcoin blockchain scale. You know, Ethereum is very interesting that way and that provides these sort of tools and I would say, all right, we can do this in an even better way with even lower level than that. The challenge with that position is that um, we're now part of a bigger ecosystem yeah. of trust. If MasterCoin tomorrow were to have catastrophic failure in their system in some way, shape, or form, it's um, residual damage to the, yeah. rest of the ecosystem um, could be very substantial. So, so in some aspects, as the system continues to yeah. And grow, um, the mechanism of certification of both process and execution and whatever that meets <coughs> the open source needs and requirements is one of, I think, the most interesting conversations still to be had. Yeah. There's no, we're not going to common criteria certify the Yeah. That would be a stupid plan. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some methodology of control in the process of change. It is the formalization of the standards process within this that, that I think helps. And we know lots of people have talked about I think that still needs a greater maturation in this process. When we're in a model where it's okay if parts of the system fail, even if there are wider impacts, you know, that will let us learn about failure. And that'll let us learn about how to recover from that. And you know, right now, if you were to ask me to come up with a set of standards, I'd have to tell you quite honestly, I don't know yet, because this technology is too new. But I will know if we don't kill it off while we're learning about that. And eventually, maybe five years down the road, I'll be able to confidently say, yeah, you know, MasterCoin or Counterparty or whatever adheres to this set of good standards for building embedded consensus systems. Of course, being a decentralized world, you might, have, you might think a different set of standards are the way to go, but at least we'll have that kind of process. What, speaking of these principles or like a, a standards of practices, what role do you think the Bitcoin Foundation has in that sort of realm? Is that something they should be more on top of, in other words? Well, I mean, a simple example is like wallet security. We don't really understand how to keep Bitcoin secure yet. And as we begin to understand that, absolutely they should be you know, releasing their view of what makes for a secure wallet? Equally, you know, when Amir and I were working on uh, Dark Wallet, one of the things I was personally working on was building a standard for what should a privacy and security respecting wallet look like. And if we wind up in a world where the Bitcoin Foundation released one set of guidelines and Amir and I released another, that's great. You know, and we'll get to the point where we do have these standards to reference stuff against. Peter Todd, everybody. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to episode 159 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Bruce Fenton, Adam B. Levine, Peter Todd, and Kyle Kerboyevich. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. I'll see you next time.